Hello and welcome back to Spotlight On. Today the spotlight is on Matt Watts. Matt is Vice President of Marketing at Fender Musical Instruments, but he's also a founding member and guitarist of The Starting Line, the pop-punk band that hails from Philadelphia, PA. Before we get to Matt, I want to thank you all for the generous feedback that you've shared so far. Your comments and suggestions are always welcome, and I hope you'll keep them coming. Matt Watts has had hit records, played before crowds in the tens of thousands, and worked with musical icons like Jimmy Page. Regardless of the hat he's wearing or the job at hand, he does it all with humor, grace, and a genuine curiosity. All of these things were on display when Matt visited Light's offices in the summer of 2019, the morning after taking stage for the final Warp Tour show at Shoreline Amphitheater. We covered a lot of ground, so fasten your seatbelt, strap on your helmet, keep your hands and feet inside the vehicle, sit back, and enjoy. Matt Watts, meet Light. Hi, Light. Light, meet Matt Watts. <laughs> so, Matt Watts is our, uh, our gracious guest today. He's a VP of Artist and Integrated Marketing at Fender. He's also lead guitarist in a little rock and roll combo called The Starting Line. Um, last night, Matt was on stage in front of, what, 15,000, 20,000 people at the Shoreline Amphitheater. Not and bad. now he's here with about 20 or 30 of, of us here today. Um, you know, there's a few things that are really unique about Matt. Uh, one being he has made this interesting transition from being a recording and touring artist to a very successful business executive. Um, the other being he actually had a vision for doing that. Um, and the third is, at least in the time I've known him, he's proven to be a very humble person. Um, in addition to being accomplished and passionate um, and smart and generous with his time, um, as exhibited by being here today. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Of course. So how do you go from playing to 15,000, 20,000 people um, and the high of that to coming into a room of 30 people? How do you context switch? <laughs> I mean, it's just, um, it's like, you know, the performing and, and the, the touring component of my life, it, it happened over the span of, I guess, like 10 to 12 years. So now, like, my normal day-to-day -day life is sort of business professional, marketing executive, um, and the band stuff is just sort of a part-time thing that we do a handful of times a year that I'm very fortunate to do, um, but it, it's like leading sort of a, a double life, so to speak. Um, it's funny, my, my girlfriend and her daughter came out to the shows this weekend. It was the first time uh, that they saw us play, but I've been dating her for nine months, and I've known her kid for, for about six months now, and it's just not a side of myself that I think about in, in sort of current tense. Uh, but jumping back into it, it's sort of like riding a bike. It's such a big component of my life, and um, I think they all work together, or both parts work together pretty seamlessly. Is there, a, um, is there a Matt Watts stage persona versus the Matt Watts office persona? Totally. Yeah, is there, yeah. what's the larger-than-life version of you? I mean, I think, you know, for me, like the, the business persona, I'm, I'm very sort of pragmatic, logic-minded, um, very structured and regimented. Not that I'm not that way with the band, but... Um, I think there's enough preparation that, and, and guardrails in place um, that, you know, everything sort of functions. But when I'm on stage, it's, you know, I, I really let loose. Uh, I'm 100% present and focused and just in the moment. And I think it's, it's, you know, amazing to watch people singing along after all these years. Mm -hmm. we're, we're in the middle of a 20-year anniversary run. Um, and I can't believe that the band has been going on that long. I started the band when I was a sophomore in college. Um, with the intention of playing one show. And it just snowballed into, you know, more than I could ever imagine, opened up more doors than I could ever imagine. Um, so, yeah, I mean, being in that moment playing on stage and seeing people connect with music that we wrote, you know, 20 years ago, um, up until maybe a couple of years ago when we put out our last EP, um, is, is just something that I, I just sort of, you know, cherish those moments. Let's go back to the beginning. What's the, uh, what's the Matt Watts origin story? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Churchville, Pennsylvania, which is about 20 miles outside of Philadelphia. Um, somehow I managed to shake the Philadelphia accent when I got ridiculed uh, in college. Um, I went to college in Connecticut. But um, you know, early on, I always had a passion for music. My brother's about 16 years older than me. And you know, he moved out of the house when I was a kid, but he had this like 
really cool sort of what they would, my parents would call like a rec room downstairs, um, whatever that means. Was and it paneled? It, it was totally paneled. Um, <laughs> it was paneled. It had black light posters um, like Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, had a record player, a stack of vinyl. Um, he was fortunate enough that when he was 18, the drinking laws in Pennsylvania changed. Um, and he was grandfathered in to be legally allowed to drink. So when he was 18, he could buy alcohol, and then it was raised to 21. So he had like a kegerator in there. <laughs> and it was like the, you know, for an 18-year-old kid, it was probably the greatest thing ever. But when he moved out and, and got married, that room just, my parents just didn't touch it. So when I was in elementary school and junior high, like I would go down there, um, I wouldn't hit the kegerator. Um, but I would right. go... Right. Um, my parents are probably watching. Come on. Um, but I would flip through his vinyl. That's where I got into like Led Zeppelin and, and Pink Floyd and all these sort of guitar-based bands. And I was always into skateboarding growing up and music. And I think that enabled me to build sort of a sense of community with people who were into the same stuff. Um, got my first guitar in fourth grade. My parents signed me up for lessons. Uh, the guy tried to teach me music theory. I rebelled against it and didn't play guitar until I heard Nirvana in ninth grade and picked up that same guitar, figured out a couple songs, and that was enough for me to sort of get over that hump where it made playing guitar seem attainable. Um, and then I went to uh, college in Connecticut and studied civil engineering. And hmm. you know, I think it's one of those things where when you're 17 years old trying to think about what your future looks like, you're given like three or four options. I didn't know music business or the music industry was one of them, nor did I think that was attainable. Uh, so I went, went away to college and I was studying civil engineering and my roommate in college played in all these sort of like DIY punk bands and was, you know, booking his own tours throughout the summer, um, you know, pressing his own vinyl and just doing some really cool things. And that, you know, sort of inspired me to say, I just want to play in a band. I want to know what, what it's like being on stage. Um, and just, you know, if it's one show, that, that's cool. I just want to know what that feeling is like. Um, so, you know, this was 2001. Uh, or actually, no, it was probably 1999. Um, and, you know, this is when AOL was a thing, um, dial-up internet, um, super awesome. And I remember uh, being in my dorm room, looking through the AOL member directory for people that had singing and other bands I liked in their profile. Excellent. Um, and it was like, you know, Lagwagon, NoFX, Get Up Kids, Jimmy Eat World. And I sent out a ton of emails to people um, from my hometown in Philly, which is about a four-hour drive from Connecticut. And Kenny, who would go on to be uh, the lead singer of The Starting Line, was the only person that responded. And, you know, I sort of explained what I was looking to do. And I was 20 at the time. Um, he said he was like 15, which in retrospect is one of those, like, sort of creepy how to catch a predator moments. <laughs> um, but pre how to catch a predator um, or how to catch a predator gone right. Um, so Statue of limitations is long behind us. We're good. We're good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, him and I sort of traded a couple emails, talked about music for a little bit, and then I went home that next weekend from Connecticut, and his parents dropped him off at my parents' house, and we hung out in my basement, which sounds creepy now that I'm telling the story, and just jammed and wrote a couple songs. I had never written songs with anybody, and it just felt like it was just a really great feeling. And from there, we sort of put a band together um, over the course of a couple weeks. Within a couple months, we... Um, you know, booked our first show. I scammed us onto a show with a band called Saves the Day, which was one of our favorite bands at the time. Um, they put out their second record called Through Being Cool. And uh, they were doing a record release show in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour and a half away from Philly. And were I they called, Amish? Uh, they were not Amish. And I, <laughs> I, I don't think they're Amish now okay. either. Uh, but, you know, uh, called the promoter. You know, I, I did one of those things where, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say it was a lie. I lied to him. I lied to his face and said my band was on tour and our show fell through. Is there any way we can play at Doors? And <laughs> luckily enough, he said yes. And I think that sort of gave us the ability to be like, all right, this is a real thing now. We just opened for one of our favorite bands for the record release show. We didn't bomb it. It wasn't great by any means. But I think that gave us the ability to be like, we, we, can, we can do this. Mm -hmm. um, and from there... You know, we kept playing shows every weekend uh, through the remainder of my sort of, you know, college career. Um, I graduated in 2001. Kenny at that time uh, was 16. Um, but things were trending in the right direction. And there was a label called Drive Through Records um, that, that was L.A.-based at the time that had Phoenix TX and Newfound Glory and a couple other bands. And we knew if we made it on Drive Through, like, good things would potentially happen to us. 
and they um, you know, offered us a record deal or said they would offer us a record deal if we could figure out how we could go on the road, um, given that Kenny was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. So his mom really sort of you know, was amazing in this process and met with his high school guidance counselor, figured out how he could graduate high school early and how we could actually go on the road. Wow. Um, so I told my parents at my college graduation, um, you know, thank you very much for the civil engineering degree. Your baby boy is going to go live in a van with his friends for a while, um, which, you know, they really re reacted favorably to. They did not. Um, <laughs> did you wish you had Kenny's parents at that point? <laughs> <laughs> I, in retrospect, maybe. Um, but no, I mean, they, they ended up like coming full circle and were super supportive. But I think to any, any parents, like that's just such a crazy thing to hear of like, you know, yeah. my kid just completed college. He's gonna like. What does it mean that he's gonna go live in a van for a while and like tour with his friends? Um, but you know, it all worked out. They, you know, we went on tour. I think for about six months was our first run, and we came home. And our our hometown show in Philly, we opened for a band called the Juliana Theory, um, and it was at the venue that my parents used to drop me off at when I was a kid. <laughs> and they came in, they saw the show, and I think that finally like connected for them. Um, and then everything from there. I mean, the the band experience of touring for, you know. 10 plus years really opened up a lot of doors and I was always the business guy in the band and I just took sort of a natural liking to you know either how the business operated or what could be improved upon uh, and you know every every chance I got I would meet with you know promoters or managers or label people and just ask them questions and luckily everybody was always very receptive to sitting down for 15 minutes and letting me pick their brain about things. That's a great thing about our business is um, I think it's something that a lot of people don't fully appreciate is that the older generation or the people that came before, there's a very strong sense of pay it forward. Um, there's so many people in our business that are kind of known for being gruff or mm -hmm. difficult or um, not nice. Yeah. But uh, when you get them one-on-one, -on -one, um, this is definitely a hand-me-down uh, industry, yeah, whether sure. it's a, access to a Rolodex or just the the inside way of how it works, yeah. Um, so it's interesting to hear you um, you tapped into that as well, yeah. And I think on top of that, um, and sorry to interrupt, I, th I think it's almost a, a sort of young person's game, right? I think the you know the the younger generation that that's coming up, you know, they have their ears to the ground, they know exactly what's going on in terms of music, culture, tech. Um, and I think, you know, the next generation, I think there's a responsibility to, to usher in that next generation of, um, you know, people that will be sort of running the business one day. But I think it's also a two-way street. And I think, you know, the, the people that have reached out to me that just want to grab coffee for 30 minutes and, and, and learn from my experiences or want to hear sort of how I did X, Y, or Z, um, I find just as much value in hearing what they're listening to or or how they're listening to stuff, or how they're going to shows, or what their sort of consumer behaviors are like, um, just because I want to be sort of, I still want to have my finger on the pulse. Mm -hmm. let, me, let me dial back for one second and ask you, before we get into the crazy life on the road stories, um, it doesn't sound like there was a whole lot of, like you weren't in 50 bands before you made it big. Like your, no. your story seemed to be very, there was a straight line, and it was this methodical march. Yeah. Um, if you hadn't been in college, would it have moved faster, or was the four years that you took where you guys learned how to be on stage and learned how to write, like, how do you think about your trajectory versus somebody who toiled for 10 or 15 years, you know, as a singer-songwriter in a coffee shop type thing? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it's different being in a band versus being a singer-songwriter where everything's sort of on your shoulders. I think for us, I mean, I think the benefit was, you know, I was 20, I'd never been in a band before. The other guys were 19 and Kenny when we first started was 14, 15. Um, I think we were super naive. And I think, you know, when you're young and creating music and you don't know anything about that, I think that really helped. So for us, you know, would I call a, a show promoter now and ask if my band could jump on and open first? There's no way in hell that would happen. But being 20 years old, being hungry and wanting to play with Saves a Day, like, yeah, there's, there's, no way that I was not going to do that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's sort of what it boils down to. So you go out on the road for six months um, in a van, yeah. I'm assuming, with yep. a handful of other people carrying yep. your own gear, doing all that totally. stuff. Um, what's that look like? How do you, uh, I guess this is early 2000s, yeah. um, how do you survive on the road? How do you get gigs? How do you get from one place to another? Like, 
tell us a little bit about what that looks like yeah. today. Yeah, I mean, we, so we signed to a label called DriveThru, and DriveThru was super supportive and really sort of helped us learn the ropes. And the benefit about that label, and this was, this was like right around the time that Blink-182 was starting to break. And, you know, for us, that was certainly a band that we, we looked up to, um, but they weren't massive yet. I mean, they were getting big, but, you know, it was, you know, their songs were being played on the radio, uh, they were on MTV, but the other bands that sort of followed after them hadn't, hadn't broken through yet. So it was still a very, like, DIY sort of punk mindset of a lot of VFW halls, Knights Halls of Columbus. It wasn't necessarily, like, real venues. It was kids putting on shows um, and... Yeah, just playing for your peers and playing with your peers. Um, so there's something super cool about that. Um, drive through, you know, one of the things that I think it was sort of the ethos of the label is all about community, and they wanted to make sure the bands on the label got along with each other, they could tour with each other, um, and I think you know every band wanted that, but there's also sort of a strength in numbers thing. So when we first signed to the label, they um, had gotten us on a tour with RX Bandits to, to play first of three or first of four on that tour. Um, with our advance, we had enough money to buy sort of a 15-passenger Ford van. It was used and, and totally beat down. It smelled horrible. I can still, you know, talking about it, the scent just comes back to me immediately, um, and it's repulsive. I don't wish it on anybody to smell that van if it still exists. Um, but, yeah, it was. we were just learning as we, we were going. We were making... 100 to 250 dollars a night. Um, there was, you know, four people in the band at that point in time, uh, and we had two people on our crew. We had a merch guy, and then we had uh, a guitar tech, and we were just figuring it out as we went. And this is—I don't want to say pre-internet, but internet wasn't as accessible as now. So it was printing out um, directions from MapQuest, or having, you know, the old school sort of atlas in the van, um, and you know, playing a show and then driving probably three or four hours after the show all cramming into sort of one Motel 6 hotel room or staying at a, a fan's house, some, some of which were great and super welcoming. Other times it was kind of creepy, um, <laughs> you know, as, as one could expect. And just waking up early, driving to the next show, and just, you know, doing it again. And I, I think at that point in time, it was just so exciting to be on the road with your best friends. I saw my friends from college, you know, graduating, going to work, um, and I felt like sort of I sort of, you know, won the lottery doing this, making 100 bucks a night. Um, and, you know, things, you know, slowly got bigger and bigger with every show. Um, but, yeah, in, in the beginning, it was a grind. I think it was the perfect time in my life to do that, um, just because, you know, when you're that age, you don't have the financial burden that, you know, you have when you're 30 or 40 or 50. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think we were just looking to prolong our adolescence's as long as humanly possible. Yeah. So uh, you guys get noticed by drive-by. They say... Drive-through. Drive-through, I'm yeah. sorry. We'll put you on the road. We'll, we'll put out a record if you can go on the road. Yeah. At what point did... How early on or how late into the songwriting um, did you have songs that have been around for the whole 20 years? Were any of the early good songs with Kenny usable? or? Yeah. So, you know, we recorded a four-song demo... Um, which is online somewhere. It's awful. Um, tempo changes everywhere. It's just like botched notes. And I think it was before, um, you know, Kenny grew into a man uh, and the man we all know and love. Um, so he did a really good job of navigating the voice changes. Um, but his voice was definitely super high, definitely, you know, wasn't as polished as it was now, but did a good job of navigating that. Um, after that, once we started t- to take things more seriously, um, and once we started talking to drive through early on, um, we got some notes from them about what was lacking in the songs. And I had gotten Richard from Drive Through's AOL screen name. And one of my friends was like, just send him an instant message, say something really messed up just to catch his attention. Um, and, you know, strike up a rapport and start talking to him about your band. So basically, the record label and Richard or an A&R person or whomever helps you learn how to write songs. Basically, I wouldn't even say they they learned, helped us learn how to write songs, but I think they brought a level of awareness to our craft. I think for us, it was like none of those bands had broken through, so there wasn't, you know, textbook songwriting. There wasn't like in that genre. We we saw what our peers were doing. I don't want to say we emulated that, but like we thought it, it stood sort of neck to neck with that. What was the genre, just so everybody here knows? I would say, like, at, at that point, pop punk or, or what would become emo. Um, it, was, it was that whole thing. So we toured a lot with, like, Fall Out Boy and Paramore. 
um, did like five or six full warp tours. Um, so it was it was that sort of that sort of lane, and and you know we were there right at the right time when that genre sort of became mainstream and hit critical mass. Uh, but yeah, I mean for us, we were learning as we as we went, um, even if it goes from songwriting to touring, and, and we're just learning as we're going. So we didn't know about st- song structure. Um, Kenny, our singer, who's our, our principal writer, uh, he plays bass also and plays every other instrument. Um, you know, he, you know, just developed this proficiency for songwriting immediately. He always had a natural tendency to write these really amazing melodies and take things to a place where, you know, you thought it was going to go to a familiar place and then it would just go to a different place but still be equally as hooking, hooky and, and compelling. Um, and I think just having some, some notes from, you know, the label or eventual producers of, hey, you know, have you tried this or, you know, the bridge could be a little bit stronger. I think he would be able to take that feedback, distill it, and really push himself to do better. So I think that that makes sense in terms of my understanding of how recorded music works. There's usually a producer or an A&R person that helps a band craft. Who does that for you with your live show? How do you learn how to be on stage? For us, I mean, I think it was just putting in the the 10,000 hours, right? I think it's getting up there and seeing what reacts and what doesn't react and just being comfortable. Were you ever self-conscious? Yeah, totally. Um, and I think I'm, I'm still self-conscious to some degree, um, especially now since we don't do it that often. And I think there's a lot of pressure because, you know, we've been a band for 20 years. Some of those songs have really impacted our, our you know, fans' lives. And we want to make sure that they have a great time and that the music is as good as it should be. Um, so there's an onus on us to, to really deliver. And we live all over the country at this point. It's, it's not a full-time thing. So... You know, we practice a lot on at, at home, and we get together and rehearse. You know, a couple times before we play a show, um, and and make sure it's it's really tight and succinct. Um, but for us, it was just all about sort of touring and making sure the transition from song to song is great. Um, we put a lot of thought into you know what key certain songs are in, um, and making sure it flows seamlessly, uh, and just seeing what reacts with fans. I mean, we don't really change our arrangements up too much from a live perspective. For us, we want to make sure it sounds as good or, or better than the recording. Um, and fortunately, we've always been one of those bands that's been able to do that. And how long between when you were signed and you were doing that six months out on the road to when you had product on the shelves? Um, I would say when we first started touring, there was an EP on the shelves. Mm-hmm. And I think for us, it was important for fans to be able to leave, um, listen to the music, connect with the music. And then for us, like every time we would come back to a certain city, we wanted to grow our fan base. Um, and, and doing that with new music and merch. And like we were gen- genuinely interested in meeting the people coming to our show. So developing a sense of community around our own band. And I think ultimately putting in those hours and sort of connecting with everyone on the road, um, you know, building those one-to-one connections in VFW halls and Elks Lodges and staying at fans' houses, I think that's the reason why we've been able to sustain it for 20 years, because um, we never relied on radio or MTV or anyone else to sort of build those connections for us. Um, it was still that sort of DIY mentality even when we were on major labels. So uh, what was the next step? So now you're out on the road, um, you've got product out. What, what broke? How did you break? So it's a good question. Um, so we had an EP out, and you know we were building a little bit of buzz. We were on some, some cool compilations. And then it was time for us to make our first full, full length. Um, and then, you know, we were huge fans and still are of Jimmy Eat World. Um, I think collectively their album Clarity is probably one of our favorite records. And there was a gentleman named Mark Trombino uh, that produced that record. And we just loved how it sounded. We loved the arrangements. Um, and, and Mark, you know, wanted to produce our first record. So we went to the studio with him. And, you know, he had made, at that point, records for, you know, Blink-182, for Jimmy Eat World. He played drums in a band called Drive Like Jehu, which is just this sort of indie, sort of mathy band that we all sort of really, really admired as well. And I think being under the microscope with someone who's so good at his craft like that, um, it was one of those oh shit moments that, you know, really made us uh, step up our game. So we did pre-production with him for about two weeks, um, and he really sort of helped us get the songs to where they should be, um, but also from a, from a playing standpoint, really drilling into where we need to improve upon. Um, and I think that's what, all the, that's what you know, the underlying theme of you know, Richard and Stephanie from Drive Through um, or Mark Trombino being, being able to hold up a mirror 
and being able to help us recognize where the gaps were and be self-aware enough of here's how we fix those gaps and fill in those gaps, um, it was really helpful for us. So we went through that recording process and uh, there was a song called Best of Me that we recorded on that record. And that was, you know, the, the, the breakout sort of song from, from that record. And I think that's probably, you know, the reason that we're still able to play shows 20 years later. I don't want to say it's a one-hit wonder sort of thing because it was never a massive hit. But I think it was, uh, you know, an emo anthem at the time that if you were between, you know, 14 and 20 years old, um, that song, for whatever reason, really resonated with you. And, you know, um, Kenny wrote that song. He got, a, he got a journal for Christmas one year and really just wanted to fill in, fill in the journal with, with lyrics that he was proud of and literally opened up sort of that journal and that was the first thing he wrote in it. Um, you know, hmm. the lyrics from start to finish. And um, yeah, for whatever reason, Mark was able to pull out some magic and things, we, we saw things get exponentially bigger from there and just really connect. So one thing that strikes me about your story is that it sounds like, first of all, you guys were incredibly earnest and focused and it didn't happen by accident. There was a lot of hard work. Um, it sounds like you were open to direction, but you still had a sort of ethos and a point of view you came from. Um, was it fun? It was a blast, yeah. I mean, those guys are still some of my best friends. Um, and to be, you know, 22 years old and seeing the world with your best friends and going to Japan, Australia, Europe, um, California, all over the world, like, yeah, I mean, to me, there was nothing better than that. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, every moment was fun. It was, it was definitely, you know, not super fun to stay in a Motel 6 hotel room night after night with, you know, five or six other people. Um, but we made it work. And I think we, I, I don't think we knew what the definitive goal was um, at the time. I think we kept setting smaller goals for ourselves and accomplishing those and then sort of raising the bar with every step. Um, I think if you would have asked me, 19 years ago, do you think you'll be, be playing shows in 20 years? Do you think you'll be, you know, have this sort of career longevity? Probably not. Um, so I think it, it's a matter of setting re realistic goals, attaining those, and then just raising the bar sort of with every, with every step. At what point did you start to think about and plot a course for life after your music career? Um, I had a hunch that we weren't going to be the Rolling Stones. Um, small one. Um, just, I mean, there's only so many bands that tour for 40, 50 plus years. Um, and, you know, I th once we started going through the major label Ringer, um, so we were on drive through. Drive through had an upstream deal with MCA. So if, if a band got to a certain point, MCA could sort of cherry pick them, and you're on MCA now, you're on a major label. And you got a big check for that? Um, it wasn't a big check, but we got a check. Big check. Big check. Big, <laughs> huge check. No. Um, but, you know, for us, it's like we, we got to that point where we had sold a couple hundred thousand records, and it's like, all right, well, the major label's here to sort of put gas on the fire. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we got upstreamed, MCA folded into Geffen. Um, so it was, you know, go make a new record. You know, we're, we're figuring out the, the new internal structure of Geffen Records. Um, and then this, this guy named Jordan Schur um, was the president of Geffen at the time. And for whatever reason, we just didn't really connect with Jordan. I think we had, we had different visions, and I wouldn't say he was wrong. I wouldn't say, you know, um, we were right. I think it was just one of those things where it was just two polar, polar opposite ends of the spectrum. Yep. I think we were young and naive. Um, we had a vision for what we wanted. He had a vision for what he thought we should have been, that we felt like he wasn't respecting what we had heard or, or what he had heard from us. And we went in to make our second record, um, and it was definitely the record we wanted to make. I don't think it was the record that he wanted us to make, and they really didn't support it. Um, it did really well. We, we grew our fan base. Our headline shows got bigger. We got bigger festivals, um, bigger tours, but it just didn't connect in that sort of commercial sense that's important for a major label. Um, we got out of our deal. We ended up signing to Virgin Records. Um, that record, I, it's, it's my favorite record that we made, um, but right after the record came out, when, the, when our song Island started reacting at radio, um, Virgin got acquired by a tech company called Terra Firma, and all assets were frozen, and we were told to go make a new record. Um, so, you know, given the fact that I was the business guy in the band, um, I negotiated our first record deal um, using the Donald Passman, um, everything you need to know about the music business book. And I didn't do a good job with the nego negotiations by any means, but I had just a thirst for knowledge about the music industry. So, 
um, I would say after our second record, um, I kind of just wanted to help out younger bands um, and started getting into artist management. And I picked up a couple bands that were just friends from the Northeast and I just wanted to learn artist management. And our manager has been a, a great mentor for me um, throughout my whole professional life and, and with the band as well. So any, any questions or problems that I had, I would call him. He would sort of help you know, usher me through it. Uh, but when we were touring, when we were in a tour bus, which was the end of our first album cycle um, all throughout the rest of our career, I would essentially advance a production office for myself every day. So you know, the bus would pull up to the venue around you know, 6 a.m. We would sleep till 11 because that's what band guys do. Um, and the rest of the band would go try to find food or hang out in the city, sightsee. Food. Food, primarily. And I would, sure. go, I would go into the venue. <laughs> come on, come on. Um, trust yeah, circle of trust. And I would go into the venue and I would have my own production office. And it was basically my mobile artist management company. And I would just learn how to manage artists. And, you know, when the band announced that we were going on hiatus in 2007 or 8, um, after Virgin got acquired by Terra Firma, um, I, I moved to New York and worked for Red Light and did artist management there. Um, but I think it was, you know, the last three years in the band that really sort of showed me that, you know, I had built some sort of skills that I could piece together um, and help younger bands grow and, and sort of hopefully right my wrongs. Um, that, you know, the, the mistakes that we made throughout touring or pain points or not playing ball when we should have. Um, not that I would do anything differently, but I might, you know, it would have been interesting to hear some, some different advice. Yeah. And so um, you start coaching and managing other bands. Um, what's the longest time that starting line stayed on hiatus without playing or recording? So we went on hiatus in 2008, and I think it was two years without playing any shows. Um, and, you know, for us, you know, I think the... Major label ringer, you know, two records on major labels that didn't get the support or attention that we felt like they deserved, um, what was sort of dejecting. And then also, you know, you're living in a bus with, you know, 12 people. Um, you're sort of, you know, a carny at some point. You know, no offense to if any of you guys are carnies out there. Um, but, you know, doing that for nine months out of the year, it, it just became super exhausting. And I think certain people, including myself, wanted a sense of norm normalcy or to see what else is out there. Um, you know, Mike, our guitar player, had started a family. Um, Kenny had different musical ambitions that he wanted to explore. Um, and, yeah, I think every everyone just wanted to do different things. So we had, we had a, a conversation of, this has been really great. Let's, you know, put, put a pin in it for now. And if we want to come back to it, we can. If we don't, that's cool, too. So we did you know, a final headline tour in 2008, um, which ended up being one of the biggest headline tours we ever did. And we just wanted to go out on a high note. Did you promote it as a farewell? Yeah, we did. Yeah. Because to us, it was, it was a farewell. And, you know, now that we still play shows, it's more of like, in my opinion, it's an event. You know, I think it's something that we're looking forward to as much as the fans. Um, but, you know, we don't have aspirations to be a full-time touring band anymore. Granite, like, would love to get in a room with those guys and, and make some music and maybe play three or four more shows. Uh, but I, I think, you know, it's gone back to the very beginning of, of why it started. It, it, it was super fun in the beginning. Um, not that it wasn't fun in the, in the middle or, or the, the first end cycle of it. But, yeah, it, it's fun again. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's easy to lose focus of why you started, how you got to where you are, and, and you know, the reason that you started playing music in the first place. What does the success or even the months of living in a bus together do to the individual relationships? Um, I mean, I, I think you notice the, the nuances of, of people and the, you know, the quirks that you either like or don't like. I think it's hard enough like living with one or two people, let alone 10 or 12 people. So, yeah, I mean, I think you, it, it definitely increases your tolerance. It's like a for, rolling frat house. It's like a rolling frat house. And I think it increases your tolerance for, um, not <laughs> for, for bullshit, I guess. Um, you know, it, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it makes you appreciate your personal space. It makes you cherish your personal space. Um, but it also, you know, gives you the ability to be able to coexist with people 
um, even if they have you know different views, different habits, aren't as clean as you, um, <laughs> leave you know leave food out, leave you know bottles out. Um, you just you just cope with it. Mm-hmm. So you, the band winds down. You're an artist manager. Um, how do you transition to the corporate world? What happened next? Um, so you know, I was an artist manager. Um, I worked at Red Light and a company called AAM, and I did that for about seven years. Um, I had a roster of about eight bands, and I would say, you know, an artist manager, you're essentially the CEO of a band's business. So you're dealing with everything from, um, you know, the band directly to the merch company to the booking agent to the promoter. Um, you know, setting the the vision for the bands. Um, sort of marketing plan, album launches, what the touring cycle looks like, um, collaborating with the business manager to make sure that the band is, is making money and can actually you know, focus on creating their art and, and survive. Um, so I was doing that and you know, for doing that for seven years, um, towards the end of it, it felt like karma for all the craziness I put my manager through. Yeah. Just like late night phone calls. Um, there was one phone call I got um, from a band I was managing and the singer was flying to L.A. from Ohio for a writing session. And he's like, hey, um, and like lots of times like bands would miss their flights and it's a manager's job just to fix it. It's a lot of like babysitting and hand-holding, um, super glamorous stuff. And this dude calls me from his layover in an airport and he's like, hey, uh, question for you. Uh, I'm at my layover. Um, I forgot to take my machete out of my backpack. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, I got, I got through security with my machete. Didn't realize it was my backpack. It's in my backpack right now. What do I do? I'm like, I don't fucking know. Like, <laughs> I'm not like, I'm not like certified to give advice on this. I'm like, put it in a trash can maybe. Um, so I don't know if that happened. I don't know whatever happened to that machete. Um, but like That's at that point, I was just like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, so. <laughs> Um, I didn't flat out quit then. I wound it down for about two more years. But I started like looking at other opportunities in the sort of music, marketing, entertainment space. Because once I started putting my resume together, I realized I had transferable skills. Um, you know, being an artist manager, dealing with sort of operations or marketing or logistics or crisis management, as as that sort of was. Um, you know, and I was like, you know. Where do I want to go? Who do I want to be? What do I have a passion for? And it sort of goes back to you know really wanting to help sort of creatives and and working with sort of you know music, marketing, entertainment, and culture as sort of touch points. Um, and so I started like I started you know looking for jobs in the entertainment space. And at this point in time too, it was when sort of I don't want to <laughs> say the record business was sort of plummeting in a free fall, but I'll say it. The, the record business was in a free fall and it was plummeting. To- thank you. How thank did you, you react? <laughs> I was like, I'm probably not going to work for a um, you know artist and repertoire forward company because I don't know what the what the future looks like. This is before streaming had really. You know, yeah. um, hit critical mass and you know w- was a real business. Um, record sales were on the decline, and it was just a grind. So I knew I wanted to do something in music, um, but I started looking at like what's music adjacent. Um, and you know, there were certain companies I was talking to. I had really good conversations with Apple that you know it didn't lead to me you know getting a role there, but it was enough encouragement for me to be able to speak with a couple recruiters, go through the interview process and realized that my skills actually meant something. Um, So in 2010, I saw a job open for um, director of marketing and entertainment for Hard Rock Hotels. Um, And it was in Orlando, Florida. I was living in New York at the time. So just as anyone in New York romanticizes about living to Orlando, moving to Orlando. Yeah, of course. Um, it's the it's next the, logical you know, step after. Yeah, yeah. It's the, the, the only other place you go other than Orlando is Seattle. Totally. I mean, so we both live the dream. There we go. Yeah. It's the, uh, the music and culture capital of greater central Florida, as they call it. <laughs> um, so so I, I saw the, the role was open. I had my resume ready. I, I submitted it. Um, but fortunately, you know, when we would tour through Orlando... We became really good friends with Chris Kirkpatrick from NSYNC. Um, and we would crash Of course it. you did. Of course, as one does. Yeah. Um, and I didn't mean to name drop, but it's, it's a, it's a key, he's a key part of how I sort of got from point A to point B. And I think it's a matter of you know, building those genuine connections and, and, and friendships and relationships. So I called him and I was like, hey, you know, I applied for this role. 
Um, do you know anyone there? Because I'd have to imagine, you know, you being in Orlando, you probably know someone who works for Hard Rock. And he's like, yeah, my sister's been there for like 15 years. What do you need? I'm like, I just need someone to read my resume who works at the corporate headquarters. Um, so he was able to sort of, you know, put a bug in the ear. Someone read my resume. Um, I got a phone call, went down for an in- interview. And, you know, my role there, it was really sort of leaving the music business and, and going there. Um, I was on the hotel casino side of the business, and at that point there were 22 hotels and casinos in 11 countries. Um, so really having a seat at the table as to how to shape this sort of iconic brand um, in, in new territories like Goa India or Ibiza um, uh, was, was super exciting. And to do that through the lens of music um, as a touch point and to play a role uh, on the marketing team and how we market and promote these hotels, what the overall vision was. For me, that was you know equally as fulfilling as yep. creating music, um, going on the road, and, and, and you know touring with my band. It was. Did it, you ever do anything yeah. naughty or inappropriate? Like you're incredibly earnest and driven and hardworking. Like what's up with you, man? Like I how mean, do you uh, blow off steam? You uh, kick the dog or something, or like I shake it a little bit. No, shake. I'm totally kidding. No, I've never. I've, I've, I love. You dogs. don't act out. I love dogs. Come on. You don't act out. No, I mean I think um, no. I've always been like really balanced for the most part. Um, you know, I've always been into like skateboarding and surfing and, and running and um, got into transcendental meditation about two or three years ago. So that, that's helped like, you know, bring focus. But for the most part, it's, you know, I think the day to day of like being able to, you know, solve a problem or put things together or build something um, has been exciting for me. And like, I don't want to say that's a vice because it sounds super, super lame, um, but I get a lot of fulfillment and, and enjoyment in that. In your experience of having gone through it firsthand as well as shepherding other artists through the process, what do you think differentiates you or the fellow guys in your band versus other young people that come up through the same meat grinder yeah. and who don't come out on the other side of it with any hope for the future or options or you know, mental health. Like, what, yeah. what, why do some people get chewed up and spit out, and how did you not? I think the, you know, I think the punk community is really amazing in the sense that it is a true community. And I think there's no room for, for bullshit. I think everyone, for the most part, that we came across had, you know, held themselves to a high moral standard. Um, it was collaborative. You wanted your peers to do well. And I think we had the vision, whether we knew it or not, to scale that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of where we came from, of, of playing those small shows, um, connecting with people there, and how do we bring that to large clubs and theaters and festivals and so on. Um, so I think that that's one of the reasons that the, the band stuff worked. Um, in, in regard to life after band, um, everyone's adjusted really well. I think you know we weren't one of those bands that had crazy drug problems or you're reading crazy stories about, you know... Um, misconduct with fans or, or any of that stuff. I think all of us came from, you know, good families, held ourselves to a high moral standard. Um, and I think the, the crew that we surrounded ourselves with did the same exact thing. So I think we had a really good crew of people, and I think we also had a good vision of, of what we wanted. And I think that's, that's where people can sort of get lost. Um, we never felt like we were owed anything. Um, I think everything that we, we built, we felt like we earned it, and we were proud of that. I think there's a lot of, you know, not a lot of artists, but there's artists coming up that are like, I'm waiting for my big break. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether you're sort of, you know, in marketing, in operations, or an artist, like, no one's going to give you your big break. You have to develop that story and sort of knock on the right doors respectfully and the right way um, and, you know, do a good job. And eventually, you know, doors will open. You just have to be paying attention when they do open. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great. So you're building a career. Mm-hmm. in the corporate world or in the business world, um, keeping one toe in music? Yeah. Um, playing a few times a year? Yep. Mainly starting line, or did you have other things going on? All starting line. I mean, I've jammed with a lot of people and started some side projects, but never never played live, recorded some stuff. Um, but if you were going to be an artist, it was going to be with those guys? Yeah, I mean, for me, I felt like I accomplished everything that I wanted to do with that band, and it's just, yeah, it's just, it's just weird having that connection with anyone else yeah. at this point. So fast forward me now. What do you do at Fender? So I'm the VP of Artist and Integrated Marketing. So um, I came on board about a year and a half ago, um, and my role was Vice President of Artist Marketing. And you know, Fender, 
went through a shift a couple years ago of bringing, you know, or, or developing a headquarters um, in Los Angeles um, to be closer to the music community, to artists, to the people that play our instruments. And with that, you know, there was a new executive team that came on board, some, some really brilliant people. Um, Andy Mooney, our, our CEO, uh, you know, was at Nike for a long time. Evan Jones, our CMO, who's my boss, um, was also at Nike for a long time. And I think their mindset was, how do we evolve from a manufacturing company um, to a brand? And one of the, the touch points there was, how do, we, how do we deepen our connection with artists? And, and to do that from a genuine place. Um, so my role was really to, to build and work with the artist relations team and grow it into an artist marketing team. So how do we really transform the ways, ways that we work with artists from going from you know, a company that gets product to artists, um, it's focused on product seeding, making sure they have the right equipment to write, record, and tour, to how do we leverage our nine million fans on socials? How do we integrate artists into our content? How do we like, tell the artist story? How do we give them a platform um, to, to showcase what they're doing and you know not that we you know, aspire to break bands but if we can give them another avenue to get their music heard to develop new fans um, I think that that's sort of one of our, our passion points um, so that's been one of my um, one of my goals at Fender and then about six months ago I took on more responsibilities on the uh, integrated marketing side and, and that is essentially taking our physical products to market um, so when we're releasing a new guitar series or amplifier or any, any physical product, um, working hand-in-hand -hand with the product team on developing the marketing briefs, working with all the functions in the organization, um, you know, whether it's creative, social, PR, um, email, CRM, and so on, and really developing that plan and making sure there's a seamless, unified, go-to-market approach, uh, making sure our sales team has everything that they need to relate to re retailers to set us up for success. Um, the MI or musical instrument um, industry is still, you know, very brick and mortar driven. So for us, it's just having sort of a really tight, succinct approach to here's when we're launching product, here's when the, the content's coming out, um, and developing those assets that go out to all of our key dealers, retailers, and so on. But also building our, um, you know, our, our direct to consumer approach, not from a from a sales strategy standpoint. But, you know, making sure our Fender fans know when products are coming out, yeah. um, what the features and benefits are, and then driving them to retailers. What role does uh, technology play in your, in your job or at Fender? Like, how, how's, how's Fender adapting? I mean, we've grown our, um, you know, digital marketing team and, and CRM team exponentially over the past couple of years. So, for us, it's, it's really digging in deeper to um, understanding what consumer behaviors are. And I think that was the first step of it. So we did a big brand health study, which was really sort of enlightening, um, where we learned 90% um, of first-time guitar players quit playing, um, you know, within the first three months. Hmm. So, you know, when, when you see the Washington Post write an article that says the guitar is dead, um, the guitar isn't dead. There's, you know, I would say more people playing guitar now, they might be using it in different ways. Um, but I would say, you know, the guitar, or the guitar industry doesn't have an awareness problem. It has a retention problem. So how do you get people over, you know, that hump? Because if they get over that three-month hump, they'll buy, you know, five to seven guitars in their lifetime. Um, so I think for us, you know, CRM and understanding our consumers plays a key role in that of knowing what they want. So if we know a first-time buyer has a 70% propensity to buy an acoustic guitar, well, when are they ready for their first electric guitar? When are they ready for... Um, an amplifier for pedals for their you know next level guitar and how do we super serve them on their journey um, and I think for us if we can if we can do that yeah it's good for you know the guitar business in general but it's also good for music we want more people out there creating music um, and whether it's someone you know shredding on stage or is using a guitar as a sonic paintbrush with Ableton and just making beats and laying guitar over it um, you know, that's what's going to inspire the next generation of musicians and players and so on. So we really want to figure out how to foster that um, through understanding our customers. And it sounds a little bit like, um, can you speak at all to the, um, the sort of the app strategy you guys have to, to get people playing and to keep them playing? That, that sounds like a piece, too, to get them through that first that first benchmark of the three months or whatever yeah. it is to make it easier to pick up a guitar. And For play. sure. So we... Um, you know, with that brand health study, we, we launched um, our digital learning app called Fender Play. 
and it's been wildly successful. And I wish they had it when I first started playing guitar. I think I mentioned before, I got a guitar in fourth grade and I quit because my guitar instructor just wanted to teach me music theory. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to play a Guns N' Roses song. Um, so Fender Play, um, it literally teaches you everything um, incredibly quickly and, and, and super thorough. Um, and you literally play your first song and riff your first day. Um, so you fire up the app and it, it walks you through a path um, and it, it gets you playing immediately. And for me, you know, learning a Nirvana song when I first picked up a guitar, that was enough of a hook for me to, to sort of want me to keep playing, to go d- further down the rabbit hole. And I think that that removes a big barrier of entry because I think you look at a guitar, um, you look at all the frets and all the strings and the dots and so on. It's like, I don't even know where to begin. This teaches you where to begin and how to get better and how to get proficient. So how do you balance having um, a very demanding, I would imagine demanding, um, important to the company day job um, with this alter ego rock star life? Um, It's, uh, you know, the the rock star life is on weekends and uh, muscle memory is a very real thing. So 20 years in, like, you know, we all know the songs really well. Um, We're strategic about where and when we play them. Um, the other guys have jobs as well. Kenny, our singer, plays in another band called Vacationer um, and tours full-time with them. So we're really limited in what we can and can't do. Um, but from a Fender standpoint, you know, I have um, a really incredible team that are best in class at what they do. And I'm not the type of manager that micromanages by any means. So I think it's, you know, for us, it's, it's setting everybody everybody up for success, managing expectations, um, you know, being sort of standard operating procedure driven, being process oriented and process driven, um, and understanding what's coming out when, what the priorities are, and keeping everyone on track. And everyone on my team knows everything that's happening at all times, um, and, and likewise. And I think it's just a matter of being, you know, overly communicative and setting realistic goals and expectations. Also pushing yourself to do better every time, but um, I think as long as there's a plan and everyone's aware of what those pieces are and what the potential moving parts are and and risks, um, then it all sort of balances out. One more quick question. How has has touring changed since you were first out on the road? And I don't mean in terms of being in a van versus being on a bus, but have you, from the artist's perspective, has touring as a business changed, or has the the mechanization of it changed at all, or is it would a would a touring artist from forty years ago recognize life on the road today? Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there, there's way more festivals, right? Um, and I, I think when we first started touring, there was Warp Tour, and that was about it. And we played the the final Warp Tour yesterday, which was the the twenty fifth anniversary. So it was an honor to do that, and that's the last touring festival, to my knowledge. Um, which is crazy. So, yeah, I mean, you have these sort of regional, um, larger-scale festivals, and I think that's what, you know, bands really sort of time album releases to. Those are the big sort of marquee moments. I would say music business in general, when we first started touring and playing, there was a couple, like, big drivers. If you got, you know, an Apple Sync, or if you played Kimmel Release Week, um, or if, you know you were featured in this sort of TV show, those were really big drivers that would move record sales, and then the live aspect would, would sort of grow as well. Um, you know, I feel like major festivals were that for a moment. I don't know if that exists now or not, um, but I think, you know, artists and labels are still tr- strategically releasing albums and songs and so on around those big touch points and trying to create big moments at those festivals. Um, and that's sort of, to me, the, the one big driver that still exists um, if you can create a really sort of big moment. Well, I think um, I want to give everybody a chance to ask some questions, assuming they have some. But I think um, you know, a few themes in your sort of life and career that, that stand out to me. And I think what I really recognized the first time we met when you, when you came to Amazon. Um, so Matt and I worked together at Amazon. And he was one of the only people that um, it's very difficult to get hired there. Um, and after Matt came in for his interview process, it was, he's probably, he might be the only unanimous um, decision in my time there. And, um, and it was interesting because he broke the rules of the interview format. And it's generally frowned upon for people to come in and break the rules of the interview format. And you did it by coming in and you basically commandeered the process. And instead of it being 
similar to the process we use here where it's uh, you know, several people interviewing you and asking you questions. Matt came in and did a presentation. And that's, it's very frowned upon there. Presentations culturally are frowned upon there, like PowerPoint's forbidden. Um, but that ties into the theme, I think, of your career, which is um, kind of jump into the deep end a little bit, do, yeah. do it a little bit differently, um, have a point of view. Um, there's an element of like fake it till you make it. Like get into yeah. the deep end and you'll figure it out. If you trust yourself, if you have a, if you have a center that you can, that you can draw on, um, but also know that um, you know you, the easiest way to get other people to bet on you is by showing them that you believe in yourself. Yeah, and I think that 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 came through from the moment I met you, um, and I think that that's a great um, that's a great lesson for everybody here. We do that as a company all the time. Knowing what you know about the way the ticketing industry works and how it can be exploitive to fans, um, or at least um, aggressive towards fans, um, and the fact that artists um, are complicit in some of the um, the wrongdoing perpetrated on fans, either by um, being willfully ignorant, turning a blind eye, or in some cases participating in um, in sort of off-market or aftermarket ticket activity. Um, if you could roll back time to the beginning of your career um, on the artist side, um, is there a point of view you would have had about ticketing for your fans, or is there anything you think you could have done differently to make it a more fair ecosystem for your fans? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great question, and it's one of those things where, you know, being a touring artist, it's something that we just didn't think about. I think we were just not informed. We didn't know there were other options out there. We would book a tour, and we would look at the ticket counts, but we didn't understand the subtle nuances of the business. And it's only when I got into, you know, artist management did I really uh, understand how sort of messed up that landscape is and even at Amazon too digging in further and, and seeing how unfair some of these deals are or what goes on in the secondary market I mean for for me you know worked having worked in artist management or you know being an artist myself like not having that customer data of who your super fans are um, and being able to notify them when you have you know um, a new piece of merch if they're interested in hearing from you or you're playing two shows a year and they're in these markets um, and relying on a third party to sort of handle that, that comm strategy for you, I don't think it is, is a great service to anybody. Um, so for me, I, I would have rather been able to have a seat at the table and understand who's buying tickets for our shows, what the demographics are, are they in line with who we think we're marketing to, um, and are they getting what they want out of it. Like, you know, it's, I, I think that the overall ticket purchasing experience isn't seamless by any means. Um, and I, I wish I would have asked those questions early on. Not that I would have been able to necessarily affect change, um, but I think there's, there's a much better way to super serve the fan, and I, I think that's, that's a big pain point from where I sit. I have a question. Um, the statistic you cited about 90% uh, of guitar players will give up after three months of playing, mm -hmm. do you think it has anything to do with uh, music programs being gutted from schools and the drop of musical literacy among children? Um, yeah, I, I do for sure. I think that's a big part of it. Um, so, you know, at Fender, we're, we're working on hopefully a solve to some of that that we'll be announcing in September. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's a kid's sort of first inroads to music. It's, it's connecting with other kids and learning how to play. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, it's such a bummer to see music not be as widely available as it was when I was a kid. Uh, and, and, you know, there's organizations like us and anyone else in the music business that I think there's an onus to sort of raise your hand and step up. And, and whether it's through developing a 501c3 or, you know, supporting other like-minded programs like VH1 Save the Music or Notes for Notes, um, I, I think, you know, that stuff needs to exist. And I think people need to make it a priority. It's a great question. It's interesting. One of the things I've seen since um, I've gotten involved a little bit with organizations that, that do music education is that they're also focused on band instruments, meaning school band instruments, um, which is great. It's great to give kids exposure to any kind of performing. But when you hit the teenage years, it's not what they want. You know, they want a guitar. They want a bass. They want maybe a keyboard. And, um, and all the programs are going after trombones and trumpets and things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. So I think there is a disconnect there between the agenda of the the sort of mainstream music educators and what kids really want. 
And I think that it really comes down to the, the teacher and the instructor, right? If a teacher has a passion point for wanting to inspire these kids, um, it can be effective. If, if, if they're not inspired, then you know, the kids are going to suffer for it. Um, before we uh, re- release Matt back out to the wild, does anybody else have any questions? Who was your favorite drive through van back in the day? Oh, that's a good question. Other than starting line. Um, man, I mean, Newfound Glory really showed us the ropes of how to tour, and, you know, they literally taught us how to be a band and survive on the road, so I would have to say them. Um, I mean, from a musicality standpoint, RX Bandits, I thought, just sort of pushed the boundaries of what anyone at that time was doing. Um, I wouldn't even say they were one of those, they weren't in the same genre as us, um, but they, they taught us how to be better players for sure. We used to manage two attractive bands way back in the day. What bands? Penangle and Celtic City. Oh, no way. Yeah. Uh, anything else? Thank you. Thank you. It's great to have you here. All right. There it is. That's Matt Watts for you. Thank you for spending your finite listening time tuning into Spotlight On. Remember, we're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you can get your podcasts from. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder and edited by Craig, along with Michael DeCesar. Our theme music is Little Rock by my hero, Sonny Chirac. All the thank yous to Matt Watts, as well as Aunt Taylor and the entire Light family. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us online at light.com. That's L-Y-T-E. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. They and we will thank you. And if this episode made you quake with joy, do the man a favor and post a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. It really makes the magical podcast machine do its thing on our behalf. Really. You can send flowers or throw stones directly my way by emailing me at lawrence at light.com. L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E at lyte.com. Thank you so much. Be safe and stay in touch.